Hi, I'm Wendy Zuckerman, and you're listening to Science Versus from Gimlet. Today, we wanted to do something a little different. So, a lot of us have been at home, MacGyvering through our lives. For me, I'm recording from home, and I'm using pillows to muffle the sounds of my neighbours. It works okay. But for scientists, MacGyvering their work is a totally different ball game. They have lab animals they have to keep alive, and experiments that can't be saved with bedding. So today, we're going to tell the stories of scientists from around the world who have had to make some very weird choices in the middle of this pandemic. These are researchers who have spent years investigating pockets of the natural world, digging into the nuances of frog mating calls, the breeding habits of endangered turtles, and the superpowers of plants. And we're going to find out how this year things had to change. We just didn't know how it was going to go. I was all gangbusters that, no, come hell or high water, we're going to do this experiment, by God. I need to be there. I know I need to be there, but there is no way for me to actually be there. This will be a very strange year for everyone in research. Coming up, four dispatches from the world of science and how their research has recently gone topsy-turvy. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsor job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash science. Just go to Indeed.com slash science right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Welcome back. Today, we're talking to researchers from around the world who are seeing this pandemic shake up their research. And our first scientist has had to MacGyver her way out of this using smashed bananas. So meet Dr. Jimena Bernal and her Tungara frogs. Yeah, so they're actually tiny frogs, like an inch long, and they look like a piece of mud. Jimena studies how frogs communicate in her lab at Purdue University in Indiana. And she talked about them with producer Laura Morris. What's so special about these particular frogs? So the, these frogs have a really neat communication system. So the males call and they produce a whine that sounds like, tung, tung. And when the females show up, 
the males take it up a notch. They start adding chucks and they sound tungara, tungara. And that's why their common name is tungara frogs. <laughs> Jimena has about 70 frogs. And we just want to tell you one more cool thing about the frogs. It's about how they eat. So Jimena feeds them with fruit flies. You put the flies on the tank and they look at them, they follow them with their big eyes, and then they stick their tongue out. But then the most fun part happens. They push the flies back into their into the back of their mouth with their eyes. What? Wait, so, so they blink their eyes and it pushes the food in? Yeah, they close their eyes and you see the, they're pushing their eyes back into their mouth and with that they swallow. <laughs> Jimena is mad about these frogs. But when she heard the coronavirus was on its way to Indiana, she had this really tough choice to make. Keeping the frogs alive would mean that her team would have to leave their homes and come into the lab to feed them, maybe putting themselves at risk. And of course, if they decided they couldn't do that, then the frogs, they'd croak. Oh, that would be so sad. And it would make me really sad because I love these frogs. (laughs) It would also be really tough if Jimena needed to replace the frogs. She'd have to have them shipped all the way from Panama and some might not survive the trip. And in the meantime, she couldn't do her work, understanding these quirky critters. So she brought her team together. I had an honest conversation with my lab, and we talk about it openly, like, how do we feel about it? Being clear that this main priority is that we all are okay. Humans go above frogs. As much as I love frogs, the priority is to have the humans okay. They all felt like, no, we can't let them die. Like, they were all so sad. And we came out with a plan, a safety plan, and, like, who will be in charge? What is the backup person? How we will go about it? Jimena's plan? Three researchers took turns going into the lab. And they'd go in separately. They'd count the frogs, change their water, and feed them with fruit flies. Now, the flies were actually their own problem. Usually, Jimena's team got the flies' food from a place which was now in lockdown. So the team had to make the food from scratch. They got this recipe, smashed bananas, apple cider vinegar, potato flakes, yeast, and then had to carefully mix it so it wasn't too dry or too soggy. Turns out flies are quite the Goldilockses. Now, at this point in the outbreak, back in March... Jimena had no idea if her team could keep this up. Her researchers might get sick, the plant could fall apart, and the frogs could starve. Other labs around the US have been forced to euthanize their animals. So Jimena, she prepared for the worst. And I wrote a protocol about how would be the way to euthanize all the frogs, or even if we have to reduce it, maybe euthanizing the old ones first. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't fun and... But I think we had to be prepared. We just didn't know how it was going to go. So how's it going? Um, I think the, the frogs are doing okay. Uh, the tadpoles are growing, which are adorable, cute, like so cute when they're tiny. <laughs> um, so I think it's fine. And no one, none of us has gotten sick so far. So that's been really good. Um, it's been quite some work to keep the flies going and... 
but that's okay. I think, I think, I think we're doing okay. I'm optimistic and the frogs are doing fine. Our next story comes from a scientist who had to choose between breaking the rules and putting a 140-year-old experiment in jeopardy. His name is Frank Taluski. He's a professor who studies plants at Michigan State University. And he told us that he's been excited about seeds from when he was little. You know, literally since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. <laughs> and I can remember in first grade uh, that we would get excited as kids about pumpkins. Let's go to the, the store or the pumpkin patch and get a pumpkin. And I was like, I can grow my own pumpkins, smarty pants. You know, it's like, you know, I have a seed. This is a pumpkin seed. I don't have to go to a store. I can grow my own pumpkin. And this little pumpkin grew up to head one of the longest running experiments out there. It started back in 1879 in Michigan. Scientists and farmers were seeing that seeds could lay dormant in the ground and then pop back up again. And one researcher was fascinated by this. He wanted to know, how long can seeds do this for? How long does a seed remain viable in the soil became a very interesting question. Like, if you put seeds in a bottle for 100 years and then put them in soil, would they actually grow? So he tested it. He literally put different kinds of seeds into 20 little bottles. Uh, the bottles were kind of like uh, old cough medicine bottles or maybe old whiskey flasks. And so they're buried on, on, on the campus grounds. Is there like a, a sign that's like, do not... No, no, no. We, 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 do not let your dogs here? Yeah. <laughs> we, we, keep it, we keep it fairly well, uh, you know, uh, disclosed. You know, we don't, we don't want anybody, you know, going around and, you know, uh, doing anything to it. Oh, my <laughs> God. So it really is like buried treasure on campus. Right, sort of, yeah. So who knows? Oh, I know where the bottles are. And here's what happens to those bottles. The original plan in 1879 was to dig up one every five years. They later extended it. And now they're excavating them every 20 years. They'll put the seeds in soil, water them, and see what grows. And this means that since the late 1800s, scientists have been faithfully digging up these bottles through the turn of the century, World War One, the Spanish flu. That was between bottle excavations, so it worked out just right. Through more wars and cold wars and shoulder pads and Britney Spears, bottles have been dug up and seeds would grow. And for more than 100 years, these bottles have been excavated in the spring. The last time a bottle was dug up was in the year 2000, and Frank was the one to do it. And even though this happened 20 years ago, Frank remembers it like it was yesterday. I got up like about two or three o'clock in the morning. Frank drives out to this mysterious site on campus. He meets his colleague. They both stoop down really low, carefully searching for the bottles. You're down your hands and knees with a paintbrush, you know, and then we found the bottles. He can see the last remaining few in the dirt. He leaves them there and covers everything up, hides his tracks. And then he took that bottle back to the greenhouse. And then Frank and his colleagues spread the seeds on a tray with soil and watered them. And then you just wait. And the waiting is the hardest part, right? <laughs> I mean, the curiosity is like, come on, come on. But, you know, you know, 
as scientists who work with seeds, we knew that you shouldn't expect to see something for at least a week to 10 days. So, but, you know, that didn't stop you from going down and still peeking in and saying, you know, wakey, wakey. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> when the very first one germinated, I mean, the, the I, it wells up inside of you. It's like, yes, yes, <laughs> they're going to make it. Then the question just becomes of how many and, and who. But you know that, you know, when, when you see that very first one break the surface of the soil, the little kind of leaves, you know, that pushes up and opens, you know, you're like, wow! You're part of you. Part you know, now. It's now. It's really real. You're standing on the shoulders of your giants. Two types of seeds still grew into plants after 120 years of being stuck in a bottle. So that was in the spring of 2000, and now 20 years later, Frank can't wait to do it again. To seed, could seeds really germinate after 140 years? So when were you supposed to pop the next champagne bottle? We were supposed to do an excavation sometime in the middle of April. But by the time we got to April, you know, our governor and the state had pretty much, you know, issued a stay-at-home order. Um, that order basically, you know, shut the university down. I was, I was all gangbusters that, no, come hell or high water, we're going to sit there and excavate a bottle and do this experiment, by God. And, and it just got to the point where, no, we, we can't. We, you know, we're shut down. Uh, it's just too much of a, of a risk to do this. We have to postpone it. And so as, as May was ticking over, how were you feeling? My disappointment's probably about the strongest feeling. It's like, you know, oh, geez, you know, it's, you know come on, it's been 140 years and this has to happen, you know, now, you know. Why not just, like, sneak in there in the cover of night with a little shovel? I mean, no one would know. <laughs> the world, the scientific world would know because you have to report when you excavated the bottle and, what, and how you did it. Oh, and then everyone know that you broke everyone knows. Frank doesn't know when he'll be able to dig up the next bottle. He's hoping in the fall, but he might have to wait until next spring. It would be such a beautiful moment of symbolism if they did regrow. Yeah, talk about talk about resilience. That you know, plants come back. That you know, the birds come back. You know, our crops come back. We're able to cultivate and eat and and be happy. And and, and this whole you know, it, it's that circle of life. <laughs> it's it, it's so much a part of who we are. I mean, it is who we are. <laughs> So much like Simba waiting to take the throne, one of the longest-running experiments in the world, we'll have to wait a little longer. And in this case, it might not matter too much. The seeds will still be waiting there for Frank. But in other cases, it's different. If researchers miss their window, then it's gone. And for our next scientist, the stakes are high. Yeah, my name is Christine Figener, and I'm a marine conservation biologist, and I try to collect data on sea turtles. So usually I work in Costa Rica, and right now I'm stranded in Texas. Christine is at Texas A&M, and you might remember her from our episode about plastics. She's the one who filmed that viral video of a plastic straw stuck up a poor turtle's nose. Usually, at this time of year, Christine would be studying Atlantic leatherback sea turtles because it's breeding season in Costa Rica. So you have to imagine 
an animal that weighs close to a ton <laughs> that is very slowly making its way from the waterline up on the beach very laboriously, is then digging a nest with her hind flippers and then starts dropping her eggs. But so far, this year, Christine hasn't been able to see this. Amid the pandemic, flights to Costa Rica were cancelled. And this led to a big problem for Christine. These turtles are endangered. And she not only tracks and monitors them for her work, but her team also helps protect them from poachers who go after the turtle eggs, sometimes selling them as an aphrodisiac. And so to save the eggs, Christine and local researchers wait while the mama drops her eggs. And then they take them to a hidden part of the beach until the babies are ready to pop out. All of a sudden, you have those hatchling little noses that just kind of peek out and wiggle around. And then all of a sudden, it's like an explosion. You have like 200 babies kind of coming out that all make their way to the ocean. And we have hundreds of those nests per season if we're good. So we can release up to like 30,000, 40,000 babies per season. This is amazing. So if you don't come and protect the eggs, what happens to them? See, this is the thing I'd rather not think about. So I'm really getting nervous. The chances are that poachers will dig them up and either sell them or use them for their own consumption. And now for them, or yeah, it's probably almost like a free show when they can just go out and nobody is there that actually prevents what they're doing. I think that I'm letting my turtles down. I need to be there. I know I need to be there, but there is no way of, for me to actually be there. And even for her colleagues in Costa Rica, they couldn't get to the turtles either because the beaches have been closed. And Christine doesn't think that that's going to stop the poachers. And while it's really hard for researchers like Christine to know what's going on in the places that they're usually trying to protect, there are already reports that poaching is on the rise in some other countries. A lot of the conservation efforts that are going on usually are not happening right now. And unfortunately, a lot of species absolutely depend on those efforts. And, you know, conservationists or not, we're all stuck at home right now. And so now that you're not in Costa Rica looking at sea turtles, instead, what animals have you been able to see in Texas? Well, I have my squirrel friends outside the window. Yes, squirrel And usually friends. I'm feeding them nuts just for fun. But now I'm thinking, well, how much meat does one of those squirrels have, you know, in case the apocalypse is coming? Just kidding. <laughs> not kidding. Surely not that much, right? Actually, they're pretty fat. You would be surprised. Like a chicken leg, I would say, probably. <laughs> Two of them. Yeah. After the break... We'll head to the one continent on Earth where there's no coronavirus at all. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. 
Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Welcome back. Our final stop today is a research station at the end of the world. It's a place where no one has coronavirus. And we wanted to know what that feels like right now. So we called up the guy who runs the place. My name is Aaron Hurd. I'm the winter station manager for McMurdo Station in Antarctica. If you were to go outside right now, what would you hear? Um, I would either hear the wind blowing, which is a common uh, soundtrack to life in Antarctica, um, and the wind's not blowing. I would not hear anything. Uh, no, no birds chirping and uh, no planes flying and no traffic in the distance, just uh, just silence. Just pure silence. It is uh, it's perfectly silent. Right now it's dark, so it, it'll be dark most of today. We'll get a little bit of light. Uh, the sun won't break the horizon, so it's very easy to see stars that, that are not easy to see most other places. The Milky Way looks like... Um, it looks like almost like a cloud a lot of times. It, it's very cloudy looking. It's shockingly bright. Just It looks so totally different here than anywhere else I've ever been. Right now, there's around 150 people living at McMurdo and other nearby stations. And Aaron told us that they're only seeing a few small changes because of the coronavirus. Like a science group was supposed to come down, but their trip got cancelled because McMurdo wasn't letting anyone in. But just generally speaking, Aaron says that with no coronavirus around, there is still research going on as normal, and day-to-day life is basically the same. Pretty close, yeah, yeah. Um, we eat in a in a dining in a cafeteria in a dining room, um, and not everyone is in there at the same time, of course. But that's where most people cross paths in a typical day. When you described that cafeteria, I couldn't help but say, no, no, like, don't, you can't all eat together. A hundred people, are you crazy? And then I realized, it's okay. Yeah. Isn't that crazy to think about that you're, you over in Antarctica have a, have a much better social life than us, yeah. us in, in the U.S.? Yes. Yeah. We, uh, we've actually talked a bit about that. We, the, uh, Antarctica New Zealand research station is is very nearby, and uh, they invited us over for their Anzac Day celebration. Anzac Day is a holiday in Australia and New Zealand to remember soldiers that died during war. It's like our version of the U.S.'s Memorial Day. It's tradition for Aussies and New Zealanders to wake up at the crack of dawn and go to their city's war memorial site. And there's this moment when the sun comes up and everyone is thinking about these lost soldiers. Across Australia and New Zealand, there were little Anzac days, but the crowds couldn't come together like usual. In Antarctica, though, things were different. Well, good morning and welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming to today's Anzac Day service. Aaron sent us a recording of this year's service from the New Zealand base in Antarctica. 
We thank all those who are working on the front line during this COVID-19 crisis. It takes courage and hope and optimism to look forward to better times. Better times where we can come together and share once again. It was just kind of dawn, um, so there there was guy was kind of purple. It was it was very special. I think maybe in some ways more special because because we were able to be together, standing in a group um, as the, as the flag was lowered and. We have happen to have one of our um, participants in the borough, a very, very talented horn player, and she was able to play, um, I forget the name of the song. Um, the Last Post is what it's called. Yes, exactly. The Last Post. that it was most likely was the most widely attended Anzac celebration on the planet that day. <laughs> so uh, with all, you know, 30 or 40 of us standing there. This was a little slice from scientists around the world right now. Researchers trying to keep their animals alive a botanist itching to crack open some very old seeds, and a station manager, who, while the rest of us can't, is gathering for those we've lost. That's Science Versus. This episode was produced by Laura Morris with help from me, Wendy Zuckerman, Rose Rimler, Meryl Horn, Matilde Erfolino, Michelle Dang, and Sanduja Srinivasan. We're edited by Blythe Terrell with help from Caitlin Kenny and Alex Bloomberg. Fact-checking by Diane Kelly. Mix and sound design by Peter Leonard. Music written by Peter Leonard, Marcus Bagala, Emma Munger, and Bobby Lord. And a big thanks to all the researchers who left us messages and spoke to us, including Dr. Stella Karposha, Dr. Joanna Jonah, Anjana Parandaman, Professor Marco Fiesta Bianchet, Mike Pendleton, and Dr. Alessandra Fidelis. A special thanks to the Zuckerman family, Joseph Lavelle Wilson and Jack Weinstein. I'm Wendy Zuckerman. Back to you next time. <laughs>